Welcome to the Modern Carnivore Podcast, a guide for those interested in hearing more about hunting, fishing, and other paths to eating more responsibly. Now, here's your host, Mark Norquist. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's podcast here at Modern Carnivore. Uh, I'm going to be joined today by Ryan Bussey. Ryan is the author of Gunfight, My Battle Against the Industry That Radicalized America. This is a book that's going to be released in the coming days, I believe October 19th to be exact. And so you might be wondering, who is Ryan and why should I listen to today's podcast? So he worked in sales and marketing for one of the most respected gun makers in America over the last 25 years. And this book is really a memoir of his personal experience in the firearms industry over that time. And I think it's, it's a really good perspective as a kid from rural America who, who really sort of dreamed of working in what he calls the big leagues of, of the firearms industry, but then saw something that he really loved and cherished become a, a symbol of radicalization in a story that I think is important for us all to listen to. So I'll be honest with you. This discussion on the controversy of firearms is a topic that I have avoided for years, especially on the modern carnivore platform. And the the reason being that I look at it like just religion and politics in general, in that nobody's right and nobody's going to win in the end. But I really couldn't shy away from this opportunity when Ryan sent me an advanced copy of the book and I read it. And I really think it's not only informative, but a really good read. And, you know, if you look at the current culture in America, we're not having dialogue on many important issues. Uh, all we're hearing is is just opinions that are regurgitated and excuse me, ideological entrenchment. Um, and we're not having discussions that are thoughtful and respectful. And I think guns are too important in our culture and in hunting more specifically not to discuss it. And, and I think the impact of not talking about it is that people who aren't familiar with guns tend to shy away from them. And this keeps people from exploring the idea of learning to hunt. And firearms owners are usually only hit with you know messages along the lines of the antis are coming to take your guns argument. And this builds barriers and doesn't promote any kind of dialogue that's healthy. Um, so why don't we have more discussion on, on these? I, th I think it really does come down to what he talks about in the book, which is power and money. And I think fear sells on both sides of this debate. Um, when it comes to a lot of discussion within the industry, I don't think that today's conversation about guns is about protecting the rights of the average citizens. And I also don't think it's about promoting the sporting heritage of hunting. I think it is about control, power, and money. And again, that's what, that's what he's going to talk about today and what uh, the book is about. So bottom line, uh, guns aren't the problem. The lack of dialogue around guns is the issue. And um, it's an important part of our culture. It's something that's good, bad. Um, and, and I think we just need to have that conversation. I'm not going to avoid it. 
uh, going forward. Let's talk about it. Let's understand why we love guns. Let's look at the history of where we've been. Let's look at where we're going in the future. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes where you can pre-order Ryan's book. Uh, Again, it's a great read. It's informative. uh, And I hope you enjoy this conversation with author Ryan Bussey. Okay, today I'm here with Ryan Bussey. Uh, Thanks for joining me, Ryan. Happy to be here. Um, Yeah, anytime we can uh, sit around a virtual campfire and talk about things that matter, it's a good thing. Absolutely. So you have spent... We'll just jump right into it. You know, you've spent a lot of years working in the firearm industry, but it really goes back to um, to your childhood, similar to me. We're similar age, similar upbringing, I think, even though different areas of the country of, um, you know, hunting uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and shooting. Uh, so, you know, when did you first start uh, shooting and, and when did you first pick up a gun? I know it's probably cliched to say, but I, I really don't remember how young I was <laughs> and I'm not sure, um, you know, the rural nature of where I grew up, which I, I was raised on uh, a ranch in Northwestern Kansas, very near the Nebraska, Colorado border. And, um, you know, most of what I remember as a kid, most of the best times of my life, um, or certainly many of them involved guns in some way whether that was shooting with my father, with my brother. Um, Of course, we were big time pheasant hunters, um, deer hunters, loved to target shoot, just plink cans with my brothers, with my brother, um, walk around the ranch with a rifle, acting like I was some sort of character out of whatever movie I thought was cool at the time. So whatever, you know, guns just, it wasn't a conscious thing that guns were part of our lives, but they just tended to be, you know, part of your, your life. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, uh, I remember, I do remember the first time my brother uh, got his BB gun and this is little Daisy and, uh, I was very jealous the older mm-hmm. brother, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely, I think for a lot of us, just, just part of our, of our life. So, uh, so what's your, what's your favorite gun knowing that you've, you've shot a lot of different guns over the years. I have shot a lot of guns, just about every type of gun there is to shoot. Um, The thing that I love to do most at this point in my life with guns is bird hunt behind my, you know, chasing wild birds with my pointing dogs. And um, I've been through a lot of shotguns, but my favorite gun now and has been for a few years is a, um, is a 1912 8-AH Fox 20-gauge, which is the first year that Fox made the 20-gauge it's just a base level sterling worth, but it's a deluxe gun. And then I had it restocked and I refinished it to my dimension. So it's uh, it's patterned like a classic English shotgun with a long straight grip, but it's a classic, also a classic American, all the metals classically American from 1912. That's the first year they made the gun. So anyway, that's my favorite gun and I, it's got a lot of miles on it. That's great. Some of the oldest are, uh, are the best. Um, so one of the things I wanted to talk about with you today, you know, we've got a lot of new hunters who listen to the Modern Carnivore podcast. And, you know, the the thing that I talk about a lot of times with them when I'm, when I'm mentoring someone uh, or talking to somebody who's considering hunting is a lot of times people are, um, they're just not comfortable with the idea of picking up a gun for the first time, because a lot of times it is for the first time as an adult onset hunter, if you will. 
And, um, and so we're going to talk about your book and your, your time in the firearm industry, but I just wanted to throw this out sort of generally speaking as to, you know, what do you think define the values of a hunter? How do guns fit in? And why do you think people might be reluctant to, uh, to pick up a gun and, and, and go hunting? Um, well, there's a lot of questions in that question. I know um, it was, it was a lot. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll say that first off, um, for me and, and for many of the people who I love, respect and spend time with, um, gun, and, and I think for this country too, guns have an outsized role in our lives and in the role of the country and in the life of the country. Um, for individuals or for groups of us, I think that guns, um, they do come to represent something more than a, just a tool, right? We don't, although I, I take great care in my hunting boots, I don't have a lot of, I, I don't collect hunting boots. I don't, I don't talk <laughs> about hunting boots. I don't, I couldn't rattle off to you all the, the cool factors of my hunting boots yet our guns tend to convey and hold this sort of spiritual importance um, because they are this lasting thing that has gone through so many experiences. Maybe they were passed down from, um, you know, from a parent or a grandparent, or maybe um, they were purchased and maybe you they're new and you plan on passing them down. They're a lasting thing. And so I, I can see how something like guns are intimidating because um, they, they do have that sort of outsized social importance. Secondarily, um, and I think this is something we tend to have lost as a, too many of us have lost as a hunting and shooting culture. They're a damn serious thing. Um, guns, anybody who owns, uses, shoots, carries a gun, um, you have a lot of responsibility on your shoulders. And I think um, one of the reasons, now to get to the, to the last part of the heart of your question, why would people shy away from or be scared of these sorts of things? I'm worried that our culture has been, that we have so twisted the meaning of guns in our culture to mean some sort of faux patriotism, machismo, badass, take over the world, you know, own people you don't like sort of things with guns that we have forgot that they're a serious tool. They can be, um, they can and should be something that conveys a, a lot of warmth and um, beauty and some of our best experiences. But if we gloss over the responsible part of being a gun owner or a gun handler, they, they are, and people who do that are frightening. And um, I think that we send a lot of mixed messages to new on, onset hunters with this embrace of what looks like a very irresponsible gun culture. We say things, we say things about gun safety and gun responsibility and everything else. And then we don't, we don't do anything um, when Kyle Rittenhouse uses a gun and shoots three people at a protest in Kenosha, Wisconsin. We, we act like he's some sort of hero. Um, that, sends a lot, that sends a very bad message to the general public and to onset hunters and to, and to, frankly, everybody else in society, I think. And it's that out of whackness, I think, that some of my book um, sort of addresses. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, you know, and that's why I think it is timely in terms of your book, because I think what you just described is what a, a lot of hunters, a lot of people who own guns feel is, is um, it's that nuance of having an appreciation love for these, for these oftentimes works of art, especially older guns. Um, 
but it's different from a lot of a lot of the uh, let's say obsession over over them that I think has has uh, sort of gotten into our culture in recent years. So yeah. let's talk about the book. This is the book right here, Gunfight, and I uh, I just read this, and I got to tell you, I was not expecting this to be a page turner. <laughs> It was a page turner. I mean, because it is your story and it is a story, but it's got a really important message in it, uh, I believe. And what it is, is it's you talking about your 25 plus years of working in the gun industry, in the firearms industry, and sharing your perspectives on that and what you saw. And so I guess maybe just to, to start, you know, you started working for Kimber Firearms. Actually, you worked for, um, was it Burris before, before did, uh, yep. Kimber? Yep. Yep. But Same. you've been in the industry. You started not too long. You, you started pretty much right out of college, right? I mean, other than uh, maybe a little stint at MCI, right? Yeah. Well, I was actually doing that at the same time. But yeah, um, I, I look, I grew up, I, I played baseball too, right? And so uh, as, a, as a kid and I, every kid who ever picks up a ball or swings a bat dreams of making the big league someday. And to me, um, I loved hunting and fishing. And so getting into the outdoors industry was a lot like making the major leagues for a kid like me, like, holy crap, I, I'm going to be in the business that makes and talks about and develops and uses the same gear that I've been using and talking about and reading about for my whole childhood and through my you know high school and college years. And so for quite some time, um, you know, I graduated college in 1992, um, and I got into the business right out of college for not much money at all. Um, $6 an hour, I started at Burris, and I just wanted to live the dream. Um, and I eventually, a friend and I eventually uh, started um, a sales and marketing operation for Kimber, um, and, we, and it was a tiny fledgling paycheck bouncing you know, there's stories in the book about the craziness of which there was a fair, <laughs> fair amount of craziness and not all of it was, um, suitable for, for family conversation. But, um, you know, it was, a, it was a crazy time in the gun industry and in my life. And, it, and um, we, we sort of grew up and grew a business and grew ourselves at the same time the industry was starting on that upward trajectory. Um, and so, yeah, it's about my life and my family's life in the firearms industry. So how would you describe those, those early years? You know, you're going to SHOT Show, you're going to industry events. Uh, you're probably having a lot of fun, I'm guessing. I, I did um, because, again, it was, like, it was like a kid that made the major leagues. I was, you know, I was in and around these people who I had read about and read their writing and seen them on TV and, oh, my God, there's Gritz Gresham and you know, there's Jim Carmichael and there's these larger than life, um, folks who I'd seen in every, uh, you know, magazine that I'd ever picked up. Um, and, uh, at that time, Kimber had a colorful, um, owner and, uh, uh you know, that it was, it was a, for the most part, a, a bunch of young guys, not unlike a sports team in a, in a industry that was starting on this upswing. But the interesting part was that, that as sort of, um, crazy as those times were in some ways, they were also much more restrained than what we see today and what I experienced in the latter part of my career in that um, the industry 
self-policed and restrained much like society used to. We had norms. There were certain things that the industry didn't do that would never do. Guns were not named certain things. Guns were not marketed in certain ways. Certain types of guns were not welcome at various events. You couldn't display tactical, overtly tactical or aggressive products at any industry trade show. And those were rules made by the industry, not, not laws. They were just social norms that were enforced and, um, you know, they were they were strictly enforced on on everyone in the industry. Again, not because it was a law, but because leaders in the industry, which included industry executives all the way up to the industry trade groups and writers, you know, I call them the wise men in the book. They just knew that it wasn't good to do certain things. There were just lines across which you didn't step. Um, and so it was in some ways a wilder time, but in many and more important ways, it was a much more restrained and self-policed time. So, I mean, is it fair to say in that context of, of a, a self-restrained, self-policed type of industry, the way, the way you felt it was back then, you really, I mean, you took pride in, as you, as you call it, moving metal, right? Uh, mm-hmm. removing iron, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, and, um, and I mean, the company, the products you developed were were really high quality products. And I know the the, the first owner, as you talk about, was um, was was very proud to say, you know, the types of products we make aren't something that are going to be on the news, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, um, and I I I want to be careful to not um, sound exclusionary with regards to um, the price of products. Um, I, I I've never had you know. I like inexpensive uh, products just like I like expensive products. It's not about the money, but it is about quality and and sort of a social acceptance um, and and the pride of making a good gun, not just a cheap gun that can proliferate and spread throughout society with with zero discussion or worry about the ramifications. And that that tends to happen less with high quality guns because they do tend to be more expensive. That's just a byproduct of it. But that's, but the money I'm not really talking about, I'm talking about the social responsibility and it, and it just so happened that high quality guns kind of represent that social um, responsibility. And I think importantly, the, the rush to do things and cut corners and market in certain ways is not unlike um, and the ramifications of that in the firearms industry aren't totally dissimilar from the ramifications of that and other things in our life and our society. They're just, there has to be a line, a balancing point, right? And in guns, as we talked about earlier, guns are a very serious thing that can take people's lives. So I think there's more responsibility that falls upon gun owners, gun manufacturers, gun marketers, gun salespeople. There's more, because we're not selling, you could probably ruin the world if you sold enough toilet paper everywhere, right? Toilet paper is not glamorous, you don't collect it. But if you, if it got away from you, we could probably ruin the world with it. Um, so even some restraint needs to be had on the marketing of unglamorous products, you know, personal hygiene products, paper products. But when it comes to guns, very bad things can happen if if responsibility isn't um, instituted or adhered to in the industry. And I I think I experienced a time when the hunger for money and just unfettered growth at all cost outweighed whatever that older responsibility or that more reasoned 
responsibility was at one point. And the, and the balance in our industry and in our society, as it turned out, just got way out of whack. Um, and I think we're still there right now, and it's extended into our politics, into our conservation issues, um, you know, into things like insurrections at a U.S. Capitol. Like, it's, it's all-encompassing now. And that was going to be actually the next question I asked you was, you know, what changed in terms of priorities for the industry as a whole to sort of throw out those old norms of of restraint, if you will, of responsibility? And so do you believe, I mean, was the start and the continuation of that change uh, is is the core fundamental shift in priority, in essence, sort of a, a a priority of profit at the expense of all other priorities? Yeah, it is. And again, because guns are so serious, I think it's, it's particularly dangerous. It's, it's profit and growth, but it also how that profit and growth can be driven and increased. And I think once the NRA realized that fear um, not so much over racism, but acceptance of racism as a tool to drive fear. Um, the unfettered use of conspiracy theory and anything to drive, you know, sort of the the fringe, hyperbolic um, political movement. When that when it was realized that that could be joined to drive people to the polls, and it also sold lots of guns, and then those gun owners could be further radicalized and then they could drive more people to the polls and then more fear could be used. And then if once that got boring, then we could talk about civil war or we could talk about insurrection and then we could arm people and then we could get upset at, um, you know, perceived, um, we could call the, you know, civil unrest, we could call it race riots. And then we could worry about arming ourselves for the next uh, race war. Like you see how this thing starts to, um, snowball on itself. And I started to feel it snowballing on itself about, oh, 2003, four, five in there when, when I think the NRA realized, holy crap, we can just dispense with reality, create this new reality where we're scared and fearful and angry at everything and just keep ratcheting it up and ratcheting it up. And who knows where it'll go. Um, as it turned out, that was also profitable. <laughs> and, um, I think that's led us to a very bad place. So you talk about in your book, you talk about, you bring up the NRA now, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, I'm sure everyone is, but the National Rifle Association, the largest gun owner uh, organization of the country. Um, you talked about in the book that that when you were a kid getting uh, NRA magazine and 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 having family members who were, who who were members of this organization that it was really about gun safety and and those types of things and that those sort of foundational values seem to have just evaporated and and is that because it's a complete uh, di- diametric opposite to what you just described and when they went down that path uh, you had to sort of throw that to, to the back seat yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, I make the point in the book that um, the sort of radicalization we see that has been used in and around the gun issue is really the precursor to the radicalization that we see in and around our politics. And just like our parents, you know, there weren't a lot of stories in the age of our parents when we were kids of friendships, communities, 
families, workplaces splitting up over personal politics. It just, I mean, it rarely happened. It wasn't discussed. Um, even if there were disagreements, they were rarely venomous. Um, today, I think we all have plenty of examples of friendships and family dinners and workplace um you know, workplace meetings that have been ruined over personal politics is, is happening all the time. That's really not new to me because that's the sort of thing I saw happening in the firearms industry for 15 years prior to our country really coming apart in, with those sorts of politics. Those are the sort of divisive personal politics that were sort of developed, maybe stumbled upon and then developed by the NRA. And then really the steroids were really put to them um, in the late 2000s. Uh, during the Obama presidency, and then obviously we ended up um, with with the last four or five years that just seem, you know, particularly egregious. So I, I think there's a parallel. I don't think there's a parallel. I think there's a direct line. Right, right. So you you mentioned. So you just mentioned 15 years. I, I'm guessing maybe that that coincides with one of the milestones you talk about in your book is when Ed Schultz, who was the CEO of Smith and Wesson. Uh, struck a deal, uh, a compromise, if you will, with the government around around uh, a gun control issue, and uh, the industry felt that they were caught flat-footed, that mm-hmm. uh, th- that they were betrayed, and as you say in the book, from that point forward, no dissent, no defectors, no prisoners. Never again would they allow anyone to step out of line. So. I mean, that's what you're just, I, I presume that's what you're just referring to. So you, you've been sort of what we're as a country sort of experiencing in these rifts between absolutely, like you said, I know families who haven't spoken in years. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You've been living that for 15 years, you're saying. That's it. Yeah. Or more. Um, and I think, you know, it, at first, I didn't realize how divisive and dangerous it was, and I and I tell the story of my participation in that. Um, not easy. Not all those things in the book are easy for me to relive or admit to, but I think I'm pretty forthcoming with my roles in all those things. And at first, I just kind of went along as though, you know, as a good soldier, as somebody who wanted to forge their career. As um, I thought, I was doing the right thing. I thought this is what we were supposed to do, and. I think I came to realize it, it took me a little while. It took a couple personal epiphanies, but I came to realize that this really wasn't about guns or freedom so much as it was, as it was preached. It was more about power, political power and money and, and guns became the thing that could radicalize everybody. And I think the NRA and very smart, you know, marketing executives and politicians were ex- exceedingly crafty at using um, and, and using and fueling the the populace with with guns as the centerpiece. So, I mean, you were in the industry so long. Is that is that you know, in terms of sort of that trajectory, and like you said, you know, realizing where things were going. What do you say to somebody who says, "Okay, you're now coming out of the industry, writing this book, this sort of this tell-all book about your life in the in the industry." But you were part of it for a long time. Uh, I yep. presume a lot of people are going to have real, real hard time, and they're going to write you off because of that. So, I mean, yep. what do you what do you say to somebody who who, who says that? Um, I say you're right. <laughs> I, say, I was a part of it for a long time. I think you know you having read the book, Mark. I think you'll note that although I was a part of it for a long time, I found ways 
I, I don't mean to dismiss um, the point or the question because I think it's very valid and it's something I struggled with all the time. I, I don't discount I don't discount it as a valid question and a valid criticism. Um, I found I found ways to rationalize my involvement in the firearms industry. You know, we mentioned the company I work for and help build. I told myself I'm not involved in it because. I'm trying to build a different kind of company and we're building different kind of guns and I'm not like those other people. And I know the difference between right and wrong. And even if, even if the industry is discarding all of those old norms, I'm going to figure out a way to stick to them. And I think I did find ways to do those things and to push back. And I detail some of them in the book, but I also believe I got to a point where I basically told myself, you're, you're, you're kidding yourself, man. Like you're not, you are part of this. You, you say you're different, but you're in it. You've been in it 25 years. You're not really that much different. You're fueling the same thing that you say you're fighting against. Um, and so I guess my answer to you is, yeah, you're right with that question. And yet I also believed that I was fighting to keep my vision of the industry. And I didn't really see why I had to back out why I had to give up, why I had to give up, you know, the sort of thing that I dreamed of and just hand it over to people who wanted something different. So it's a, it's an honest book and it's an honest look at, at my life in the industry. I don't, I don't sugarcoat much of it. No, you don't. And, uh, and like you said, I think for someone who reads it, they'll, they'll understand, uh, you know, where you're coming from. And, and I think, um, you've got a valid perspective on that. So do you, I mean, do you think, I think I know your answer to this, but do you think the, um, the culture of America was driving the changes in the firearms industry, or do you feel like the firearms industry has driven changes in the culture of our country? Yeah. And, and I argue for the second, um, of those two in the book, I, I don't believe that, that the U.S. population, that good people that I know, that you know, millions of people across the country just woke up and said, oh, we're going to be radical and hate and hate half of the rest of America today. I just don't believe that happened. Um, and for for us to believe that America made other entities like the firearms industry into radicalizations, we have to believe that that sort of divisiveness and anger just innately rest in people. Um, I don't believe that. I believe that things and entities and and very purposeful efforts shifted parts of our population into political radicalization. Um, do I argue that the firearms industry has an outsized influence and did an awful lot of it? Yes, I do. Um, where you have a point or where somebody who wants to quibble with me has a point. Do I think that the firearms industry and the NRA did it all? Of course not. Um, there are lots of factors that have radicalized our country. Um, but I do, again, back to sort of us talking about guns. These are outsized, very important tools that can take a life. There are reasons why they're on flags and on bumper stickers and on shirts and why coffee companies are founded after them. Like, you know, there's not the like the well back to the, there's not the hunting boot coffee company and nobody's running around with with bumper stickers of hunting boots on their truck or storming the capital with flags of hunting boots like there's something about guns that have an outsized importance in our world right it's because they can take a life and because they're tools of intimidation in addition to all of the cultural 
the good cultural things that we discussed earlier. So I think NRA, guns, gun issues, hyperbole around those things, hatred, fear, and racism that were used to sell them. Yeah, I think all that has played a, a huge role in why our country is where it is now. So where do hunters fit in the mix of the firearms owning culture? Because you have what you've got target shooters, you've got uh, tactical guys, you've got uh, defense, uh, self, you know, uh, personal carry, you've got hunters, you know, how would you, how would you characterize how the hunter maybe fit in, fits into the firearms community 25 years ago and today? Well, first I'll say that there's a crossover and always has been. Um, and, and for instance, I believe in the right to self-defense. I own plenty of self-defense handguns. I sold millions of self-defense handguns, and yet I'm an ardent hunter. So I'm two of the things, just out of the long list of, of different types of shooters or gun owners that you describe, I'm already at least two of them, and you are probably two. Um, lots of people are. Um, that being said, I think that the root of your question, that the answer to the root of your question is is particularly important for hunters to understand. 25 years ago, hunters were hunters and target shooters were the backbone of the firearms industry, period, end of story. Um, the industry was also much smaller, uh, but they were the backbone. Today, I think that oftentimes hunters are pawns because of our deep cultural connection. We have a hard time. I have a very hard time letting loose. It kept me in the industry for 25 years, right? This cultural connection I have with my father, with my brother, hunting, shooting. That was a major part of the reason why I never wanted to give up on my dream of being in the firearms industry. And I think that same sort of deep cultural connection that hunters have um, to the things and the people and the places that they love is used to keep us in a radicalized um, movement where we're really, we're told that we value, that we're valued, but we're really not valued. Why? Because all of the issues that matter to us are the first ones to be sacrificed by all the other segments uh, and the radicalized part of the firearms industry. And a good example of that, I think, is when, you know, for instance, when AR-15s, which I don't have anything against an AR-15 in and of itself, right, of the tool, the, the collection of metal and, and various other materials to make this thing it will be said that I'm somehow against this particular sort of gun. I'm not. I am against the culture that has arisen around it, but I'm not I'm not against that sort of gun. But as that gun became the key to the growth of the firearms industry and the key to the radicalization of our populace, as it needed to be sold to mainstream America, what's the name that was chosen and used and marketed to push that into general society? Was it the target rifle? No. Was it the tactical thing? No. Was it, it was the modern sporting rifle, sporting rifle, MSR. That's why it's called MSR. Why? Because the social acceptance that hunters have built up with the general populace, with our country, with voters, with politicians, was co-opted and used and put on that rifle so that big fortunes could be built and so political radicalization could be spread around it. So we become pawns, right? All the things that we care about as hunters, these places, conservation, environmentalism, all those things are sacrificed so that we can drive the sales of some new thing that's going to create fortunes and drive people to the polls. And that that co-opting of that name, that right, the name that could have named it anything. The industry could have named it anything, but 
modern sporting rifle was selected. There's a reason for that. So hunters getting co-opted then, uh, but also uh, disparaged, if you will, with pejoratives like FUDs. And yeah. I've heard industry industry leaders use that terminology, which bugs the crap out of me whenever I hear that. Yeah. Um, what's, what's behind that? Did, when was the first time you heard that term used? Well, and I detail the time in my book in, in probably the mid-2000s when this shift from a, a firearms industry um, that was different, that was responsible, that was based on, you know, these other um, sort of more defensible things shifted to just profit. Um, and when, you know, big companies went public, Smith & Wesson went public, um, Ruger, of course, was public, but as the as the firearms industry started to grow, the pressures of publicly traded companies and quarterly capitalism, which you know drives much of the nefarious activity in, in America these days, um, whether it's you know whether it's prescription drugs or whatever, like a lot a lot of bad stuff is driven by the the urge just to hit the next quarterly number, quarterly sales number, and once that be, that started to take over the industry by storm, um, anything that stood in the way of just unfettered growth had to have some sort of pejorative term. So people who insisted on responsibility or things like, you know, uh, uh, permitting or hunter safety classes or all the things that hunters have fought for and fueled and funded and, you know, volunteered for, um, conservation politics, any of those things, they had to be given pejorative names. And of course, people who cared about those sorts of things were given their own sort of pejorative term. And that was FUD as in Elmer FUD. So you're the old fuddy duddy who cares about responsible things. We're the new tactical edgy group who care nothing about anything except for owning people, um, making more money and intimidating people on street corners, apparently with, you know, ARs and tactical gear, um, threatening to kidnap governors, whatever. That's the new cool. You guys are the old sort of FUD. So that being a sort of a of a important element, if you will, of of yeah, I anybody who's not not part of the the cool club gets gets a, uh, a a disparaging moniker. You also talk in the book about uh, the importance of uh, of, the, of the boogeyman out there, who's this elusive uh, threat, if you will, I th that, that really drives the, the fear that is the basis of a lot of the motivation mm -hmm. that then drives sales. Is that, is that a critical component? And is that something that's, that's new that you saw evolve over time? Well, it, it certainly was used extremely effectively during the Trump administration by, you know, an entire half of the political spectrum in the United States. Um, we demonized all sorts of people. We shifted from one boogeyman to the next, from Mexican rapists to Black Lives Matter activists to um, to women to whatever. Um, we always had to have a boogeyman. Um, I saw that being developed for 15 years. The most effective boogeyman ever was obviously um, Barack Obama, who you know the entire industry also referred to as the best gun salesman in America. But um, you know the the QAnon drops as crazy as they sound to people now, they really don't sound that crazy to me. I saw the NRA doing QAnon drops of their own for 15 years, this sort of conspiracy. First, Barack Obama is not a citizen. Um, he wasn't born here. He doesn't have a birth certificate here. 
And the NRA was careful not to put their fingerprints directly on it, but they would have people who espoused those sorts of theories come and speak at the national convention. For instance, Glenn Beck showed up at the NRA convention and he was a leading proponent of birtherism. Um, then you have Wayne LaPierre directly stating these crazy conspiratorial things. And I think they were probably somewhat aghast that people believed him, but they did. You know, Barack Obama is going to outlaw all hunting ammunition. That was one of his quotes. Barack Obama is going to rewrite the Constitution and outlaw your ability to own guns. That was one of his quotes. Like I could go on and on and on and on and on. Um, those things were insane, literally insane. And yet they drove voters and people believed them and they bought more guns because of it. So when QAnon shows up and has all these even more insane, crazy Pizzagate, drinking the blood of kids, whatever, I'm like, yeah, that's just an extension of the stuff I've been hearing for 15 years. But doesn't the, um, the the typical gun owner in America is there? Isn't there a valid pushback of feeling that there is a liberal agenda that is trying to take the gun their guns away from them? Is there a shred of truth there that they're able to then take out to that extreme? But there's enough, if you will, truth in there that you can get a, a, a majority of people to believe it. Yes, there is a shred of truth. Um, yes, it's, it's generally true that one side of the aisle wants to quote unquote limit things. And apparently now the other side of the aisle wants to, wants things to be limitless. My point is as a responsible gun owner and all responsible gun owners, we have to be a part, if we're going to be a part of a functioning society, our answer cannot be, no, there can be no restrictions on our activities and the things we buy and the things we do and the things we use ever, never, no way, no how. Um, I'm not saying I'm not in favor of massive bans. I'm not, I'm, not I'm not stating that. What I'm stating is we have gone so far to the other side that we have decided to be a part of the problem instead of a part of the solution. Um, and the solution, guess what? It's going to be dicey and it's going to be imperfect. Um, but to, to, to label kids who survive a school shooting as crisis actors because we're so bought into conspiracy that we don't want to be a part of a solution. That's sick, man. To, to, to label people like Gabby Giffords, for instance, who survived a, a shooting from a high capacity Glock at one of her speeches at a grocery store in Tucson to label her as the, as the head of NSSF recently did as some sort of um, you know, Larry Keene from NSSF recently said she was a liar. They've called her a pawn. She's a shooting survivor who is trying to do the right thing for the country. We have so far gone past responsibility and decency and being reasonable citizens that we risk. We are the ones that risk um, being anti-gun now because there's going to be a time when we so color, we're going to tip society over. We're not going... How can we be perceived as reasonable members of society when we cheer these things? Um, gun owners, we, we just have to understand that, that there are going to be some restrictions on, on what we do. What we, I mean, do we want all kids to have howitzers at the playground every day, all four-year-olds? I don't. <laughs> I don't. I don't think that's a good idea. Um, so there are restrictions somewhere that are part of being a... a, a functioning society. And I hear way too many people now basically say, screw that. I'm responsible. Who cares? 
I can drive 90 mile an hour through the school zone. Who cares if people get killed? Well, I think people are going to care. This this sort of no compromise attitude um, that seems to have infiltrated so much of society these days, of which uh, you know guns are are, are part of that. Um, I, I've thought about that a lot from the standpoint of trying to figure out what is the end game here. And I don't, and I believe like so many things, these things these days, I don't think there is an end game. It's purely almost transactional. It's just, we're, we're literally just living for today. Where does it go? We don't know. And we don't care. Exactly. It's right back to the quarterly capitalism deal, right? All you care about is making the next number. I mean, will the company stay in existence? I don't know, but I'll get my bonus. Who cares? And that's the way we're, that's the way we're hurling, you know, we're, we're throwing ourselves and our society and our country into this thing. Will the country exist in 10 years? I don't know, but I'll have my AR. I'll get to go scare some kids at the corner. I'll get to kidnap a governor. I, I, I don't see how, how is that patriotic? That, that, that's nothing. The founding fathers did not address anything in that way. Everything was long-term. And if we want this to exist long-term, we want our rights to exist long-term. We want our kids and our grandkids to be able to shoot and hunt and own guns like we do. Well, there has to be some long-term thinking. Absolutely. So what, what do you say to, um, what do you say to somebody who is considering their, their, uh, a 30 year old, uh, who lives in an urban environment have never shot a gun before, but they like the idea of hunting because they are buying grass-fed beef. Uh, they've got a friend who hunts, but they're just they're just a little bit uncomfortable with this idea of guns and and aren't sure how to look at the idea of a gun owner. How do you describe? What I would say, you know, somebody like you or me uh, who has has had guns their whole life, has guns now, uses them primarily as hunting, but believes in in things like self-defense, uh, as opposed to so much of the noise of what they hear out there. How do you describe responsible gun ownership to somebody in that position? Well, I think it's tough to enumerate all the things that people like you and I are um, in, in a quick kind of quippy definition. Um, I will say first, the first thing I would say to that person you describe is welcome. Um, love to have you aboard. And I think that, um, the most rewarding thing for me that I do with firearms is hunting and gathering, you know, for lack of a better term, the most organic, um, food on the planet. Um, and it's, it's, it really is a very rewarding and wonderful part of, of a, of a great American lifestyle. So that being said, it doesn't have have to happen with guns. Nobody is forcing guns down your throat. You can hunt. You can hunt with archery equipment. There are other ways to do it. If you do want to use guns, I think that I think that people should understand that the caricatures that people see of gun owners, the angry guys standing on the Capitol with um, with their tactical vest, their three percenter hat, and their um, three point AR harnesses with their thirty round magazines strapped around their belt. That's not all gun owners. Um, in fact, it, I hope it's not even the majority of gun owners. There's a lot of people who are just quiet, proud, responsible. Reach out to them. Um, because just because we're not the loudest people in the room does not mean that we're not in the room. And I think maybe that's, you know, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book is it's about time people like us take the mic back from these people, from 
you know, the people I describe, um, because they don't represent us and because we don't, we don't have to live under that definition. And that 30 year old you describe, they don't have to be that person. They can be a responsible gun owner, just like the millions of us who are out there. Hey listeners, this is Mark, and I hope you're enjoying this episode of the podcast. I just wanted to let you know that in the coming days, we're going to open up registration for our Upland bird hunting course on Hunting Camp Live. And this could be your opportunity to take part in a self-paced online masterclass with support from live interactive webinars and our outdoor mentor community. If this sounds like it might be something for you or maybe a friend who's been thinking about starting to hunt, just go to modcarn.com forward slash Upland Birds to get more information. Now there's a limited class size, so make sure you check it out today so you can reserve your spot. Now back to the podcast. Well said. So, you know, I, th- I think about um, when, the, when your book comes out here, um, and, and, uh, people are going to look at that and they're going to say, you know, okay, where's this guy at now? He, he, he must hate guns. That's probably, I'm sure that's going to come out a lot, right? Uh, a guy who used to sell guns now hates guns. He doesn't believe in the second amendment. He doesn't believe in self-defense. Um, you, you know, you left, you did illogical things. You left the industry at its peak. You left tons of money sitting on the table, I'm presuming. You could be making a lot of money right now if you were still there. Um, what do you say to those detractors who, who think they know who you are? Um, well, all I can do is, you know, be who I am. I shot this weekend with my boys. Um, we shot lots of different guns. I hunted as well, but we also target shot, plinked around. Um I love guns. I don't know how many I own. Um, you know, maybe it's enough, maybe it's not, but, um, I love guns. We'll continue to shoot them. I don't hate guns at all. I'm certainly not anti second amendment. I guess what I am is pro responsibility and pro functioning democracy. And we seem to, my belief is that we have so bought into this freedom on steroids thing I had a college professor who told me once that if we have a statue of liberty on one coast, we really should have a statue of responsibility on the other coast because a functioning democracy only works with both of those things. Um, sadly, too many people in our world only see that statue of liberty. I, what I'm saying is we have to get back to understanding that we have responsibility as well. Um, none of this will exist without responsibility. I found it somewhat interesting that, that the darling of the right, Tucker Carlson, recently visited Hungary and upheld you know, Hungarian strongman Viktor Orban there as some sort of virtue of what um, he and the right and apparently NRA wants America to be. I will I will remind everyone that um, although Viktor Orban has many of the same sort of social um, mantras and hatreds that we've seen as of late, gun rights in Hungary are exceedingly restricted, exceedingly to just the few trusted right wing thugs who Orban wants to have guns. So if we allow our country to keep being radicalized further and further right, we will have a society where just a few armed thugs running around apparently threatening to, you know, kidnap governors or kill people at protest or intimidate people like my son at a, at a protest. Um, that's what we'll have. I, I, I don't want to have that. Uh, I don't want to live in that place. So I'm, if you want to describe me, I'm someone who believes in 
the sorts of freedoms that that were granted to us and also the responsibilities that were laid on our shoulders. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, and I think that example is really interesting of Hungary and, 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 and gun ownership. And, and that is, that's the thing I, I do think that people need to realize when you're, you're thinking about those types of systems. Uh, that is exactly what it looks like is people don't have, don't have, uh, don't have firearms in them. So, um, if you were to, um, that that thirty year old person who who just asked you about how that how they could get comfortable with uh, with hunting and with guns, um, if you were to direct them somewhere, how you know what type of a where can they find a good community to to get comfortable with this idea of of hunting and guns and and uh, and and really learn and 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 move forward. I guess what I would say is focus on the activity um, that you want to do more so than the gun. Don't get caught up in the gun. Focus on the activity, and then you're going to find good people that will help you. I, I believe that. Um, whether it's through what you're doing, Mark, or, or other communities um, of you know hunters, outdoors people, um, they, there's lots of people who want to welcome new people into those sorts of communities. And don't go charging into it. Don't put so much emphasis on the gun or go charging into it, worried about whether you can wield a gun. Worry about worry about what it is you're going to do. What are you going to hunt? Um, waterfowl, upland, deer, elk. I mean, I don't know. I mean, find find people that can coach you on that. The gun stuff will come just as just as advice on backpacks do, or back to our boots example, or which Gore-Tex jacket to wear. Um, the gun doesn't have to be this all-powerful religious symbol to start. It's not the it's not the entry point. It's part of it's part of the thing you're going to use to accomplish the activity that you want to to uh, accomplish. And maybe it becomes one of your heirlooms. Maybe it becomes something that you really do love and you know pass down. But don't put so much weight on it to start. You know, I often give the illustration of of you know a lot of conversations I'll have with somebody about hunting and we always start with conversation about food, great food. Do you, do you love eating good food? You, you, you like eating meat. You like a good steak. Okay. Let's talk about wild game that can be like that. And eventually, and then we talk about the adventure. Where can you do this? How do you navigate these wild spaces? What are the concerns about, let's say, safety if you've never really gone into the backcountry somewhere or up into uh, up into the mountains? Um, and then eventually, we get to a conversation about equipment, of which one of them is a gun. Yeah. And what's interesting is when you take that pathway. Um, there's just an acknowledgement. Of course, that's one of the tools I can use. Now I'm really uncomfortable with the idea. I've never held one before and you can physically see it when they're holding it, but it's just, it's not intimidating because it's just, it's just part of that process. Like you said, it's a piece of gear that needs to be understood a very serious piece of gear. Yeah. I, so I, I often bring this up. I, I read, you know, a life-changing book for me, um, came from Michael Pollan, a liberal Berkeley professor um, who a lot of people might dismiss as some, you know, anti-gun, anti-hunting nutbag. Yet in his book, Omnivore's Dilemma, 
which is essentially about our food systems. And I think um, sort of forms the backbone of some of the things that you care about and that I care about, which is we as humans have, we're, we're on some of these paths that are unsustainable with regards to our food systems. Um, Poland's book, Omnivore's Dilemma, obviously dives into that. But in that book is a chapter where he hunts and gathers a meal. And in that chapter, although it's, it doesn't use all the terminology that you and I might use and talk about calibers and gauges and foot per, feet per second and everything else, still in that chapter is one of the most um, eloquent defenses of hunting that you will read anywhere. Um, and it is from somebody who wasn't a hunter, right? Who wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't a hunter. He, uh, it's, it's from a very unexpected place. And um, I, I have always found that, that these sort of defenses and yearnings to be an effective hunter and gather are somehow primal in us. And so when, whoever, whatever that 30 year old person does, whether they're a man or a woman or a, a, a liberal, a conservative, a college professor, whatever, if Michael Pollan, this crazy left liberal Berkeley, California Berkeley professor, can enumerate this um, use of guns and hunting in his book about food systems, I, I think you can get there, you know, and I encourage people to read that book. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. No, it's it's a great book, and he's uh, he's a fascinating guy, and and uh, I think a good example, like you said, of of somebody that you wouldn't think on the surface would be supportive of of hunting, when in fact is is very open to the idea, yeah. and uh, and so it's definitely a good one. Omnivore's dilemma, but also gunfight by Ryan Bussey, which comes out on what date and where where can people buy it. So you, it comes out October 19th. You can pre-order it uh, just about anywhere. You can go to my website, which is Ryan Bussey Author, just all one word, .com. Um, but anywhere you buy books, if you just search Gunfighter, Ryan Bussey Gunfighter, whatever, it's on, you know, you can order it through your local bookstore, Amazon, any number of other websites. Well, like I said, I mean, not only does it give interesting insights on contemporary culture, um, it's your personal story, uh, which is fascinating. And I found myself wanting to get to the next chapter. And, and you, you finished them very well of where I had to start the next chapter. I couldn't <laughs> put the book down at night. So uh, thanks. Thanks so much for being on the podcast today, Ryan. And uh, make sure uh, all of you listeners, make sure you check out Gunfli Gunfight by Ryan Bussey. Thanks so much for what you do, Mark, and thanks to all the listeners. And um, I appreciate everybody who's in this uh, great hunting movement with us. Thanks for listening to the Modern Carnivore Podcast. You can continue the journey by going to modcarn.com.